This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a new episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Thea Lenarduzzi, sitting in the big chair this week whilst Dig Abel is away, and I am joined by my regular wing woman, Lucy Dallas, sitting across from me. Hello. Hello. Is this chair really bigger or is it just a, a sensation that I have? Psychologically, it's Psychologically, massive. it's enormous. Physically, I think it's about the same. Yeah, I feel, I feel like they might have conjured some strange image of you sitting across She's from me on a, a tiny huge leather, yes, stool exactly. with those plastic ones. Thea's in a huge leather armchair with lots <laughs> of buttons. very sinister. <laughs> massive glass of whiskey. Stroking a if only, If only a glass of whiskey to celebrate because going on our slightly sporadic numbering system, it is our 100th episode today. And we have a fine lineup to market. Carl Miller, the author of The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab, published this week, will be in the studio to shed some light on the terrifying hidden reality of ridiculously complicated algorithms. A new book, Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion, centres on ten female writers, among them Dorothy Parker, Rebecca West and Joan Didion, all women supposedly defined by their sharpness. Kristin Rupenian, she of cat person fame, brings her own expertly honed instruments to bear. Another new book, but this time one written 80 years ago by Zora Neale Hurston, best known for her involvement in the Harlem Renaissance. Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo, centres on an interview with Kosola Ololuai, and Colin Grant will join us to tell us more. This spring, the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, announced a task force, the first of its kind in the US, set up to examine the automated decision systems that guide the city, particularly police, transport, justice, education and social services. This is following a bill that's recently been signed into law, which means that the task force is looking at algorithms and trying to understand what on earth is going on. Perhaps it used to be the case that algorithms might influence what film you watched or what brand of dog food you bought. But now they're in active use in making bail decisions, predicting crime patterns, classifying DNA samples. And it's increasingly difficult to know how they arrive at their conclusions and whether bias is present or not. 
Carl Miller has written a book called The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab, which deals with how power works and who holds it in the digital age. We have an extract in this week's TLS, and we're delighted that Carl Miller has joined us today to talk about it. Many thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, Shall we start from first principles, since it seems to me part of the problem in talking about tech is that a lot of us don't know how it works. Can you define an algorithm for us, please? Oh, well, that's an easy one to start with. Mm -hmm. So so an algorithm is is really just a series of well-defined steps, taking a given input and getting an output. They've been around for thousands of years. Hippocrates created one of the first to try and find prime numbers. Uh, They've been used to tell the movement of the stars in the sky. They've been used to design watches. They are just problem-solving devices. They're just um, little series of mathematical steps. Um, but of course, that's what they are in theory. Uh, in practice, they really are something now quite different. Yeah, um, yeah. Because in your in your book, in the extract that we have this week, you talk to an anonymous programmer who talks you through one of his algorithms. Can you tell us about how it worked and how the complexity kind of grew and developed? That's right. So, so th- this man worked for a tech giant and spent every single one of his days in there um, designing these services he was firstly kind of unbelievably worried in in talking to me about it and the first kind of wall that you have to get over and actually trying to understand what algorithms look like today is actually mm. that wall of of kind of legal uh, uh and proprietary privacy that, that every technology company has built around these creations they are fantastically expensive pieces of uh, of intellectual property um but when he actually brought it up on his screen finally to actually show me this algorithm one of these things which actually shapes so many one of our lives uh and which I'd actually never seen before, it was actually deeply underwhelming. Mm. It was just a screen and a half full of code, different colours, um, little numbers in square brackets, a mm-hmm. series of nouns and, and verbs, that, the instructions to the computer that, that were quite unfamiliar to me. Um, and then we spent hours kind of beginning to walk through his creation. And I kind of learned over time that, that really... Um, it was layer upon layer upon layer of abstraction. The kind of simplicity, even the underwhelmingness of it, um, was really just uh, only at first glance. Because really what was happening there was it was um, instructions within instructions within instructions within instructions. It was a house made of bricks that itself was made of houses it themselves made of bricks. A house yes. within a house within a house. A house within a house. It's like a Russian doll. Yeah. So yeah. Each one of these words might actually refer to a million lines of code. Yeah, yeah, it sort of has you picturing um, a man standing between two mirrors, basically. I mean, it, he, he sort of admits by the end of all of this that he, he, the programmer, doesn't really know how it all works or or how to sort of explain it. That's right, and that's why he decided, I think, to 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 actually kind of take the risk and and speak to me about it because he he wanted to try and flag up the kind of myriad ways in which both transparency, accountability and oversight, those really precious things that we, we've always tried to wrap power around, mm. um, seemed to be increasingly distant when we're, when we're talking about algorithms. And is that because now there's an enormous amount of data put in some kind of, un, I mean, almost literally, well, they are literally unimaginable amounts of data that we can't handle them. And also that it's in terms of, as you say, layers of abstraction, so that one word is referring to, you say there are factories, which are that they're going off and doing um, a complicated technical thing, which will then come back with an answer. And depending on what that is, they will do something else. Is it that he just he just couldn't hold that much abstraction? You could write it down and then the machine will run it. 
but is that why he found it difficult to explain it to you? There's a, there's a whole series of reasons why, and that, that, that you've just brilliantly described is one of them. Um, the actual logical kind of architecture of the algorithm is, is difficult even for its inventors to understand. Right. As you say, they're dynamic, mm. so it's not only the data which is constantly changing, it's actually all the balances and weightings and, and trade-offs and, and scores which the algorithms are actually generating themselves are constantly changing because yeah. power in this algorithm is machine learning, it's constantly trying to find patterns, it's constantly trying to uh, make sense of the world. Yeah. Um, also, another layer, I suppose, of kind of technical camouflage over the decision is... Um, that these algorithms are, are themselves fed by other algorithms. So the way he described it to me is like an, it's like an assembly line. Right. He works on one little part of a much, much larger process, and there is simply no one in that tech giant that understands logically the whole the, 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 the kind of whole um, system at large. That is an incredibly alarming fact, isn't it? <laughs> there isn't one person who says, yeah, I know how that works. It goes from A to B to C to D. There isn't, a, there isn't anyone who can do that. So, no, there isn't. And, and it, so he, 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 he sabotaged his algorithm for me. Mm. Um, now, it's, it's difficult for me to describe this because I have to be careful not to actually tell you what the algorithm produced. Sure. Um, let's just say this, this algorithm kind of built a picture of reality, which many millions of us use every day. Mm -hmm. um, and he changed one digit in the algorithm from a one to a two. And in doing so, he erased half of the output. So half of the reality just simply disappeared. Yeah. And that was just with a, a slightly kind of, um, kind of arrogant flick of his wrist. Yeah. Now, I said, would your boss know if you'd have done that? And he said, only when people started making complaints and only if they realised and somehow felt that the algorithm wasn't working properly. So even within the organisation itself, there seemed to be actually very little oversight to stop either honest mistakes or, or, or deliberate acts of sabotage from drastically changing the kind of realities which are pe being painted. Mm -hmm. And realities which, mind you, we, we all every single day are increasingly using, acting on, buying stuff with, learning about the world through them yeah. without really ever... Kind of, we've, I think we've just kind of assumed that we can't really ask the questions of why these things are being produced, that yes. the algorithm knows best. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that he, not only that he knows and understands his own power in all of this, but he's, that he's concerned about how much power he and other people like him have. It is interesting. And, and I think the, the, the kind of way he spoke was almost like he was a kind of tourist um, into a different world. He'd kind of been swallowed by this tech giant almost by accident. Um, a very clever researcher, someone who had al always been interested in the kind of technical side of, of mathematics and, and, and physics, but never really saw himself, I think, as being a natural kind of tech giant worker. And he kind of found himself um, in this new world with a kind of fabulous paycheck, um, an unbelievable working condition surrounded by very clever people. But it began to emerge that they were kind of holding implicitly this whole new ideology really this whole new way of seeing the world he kind of described it as a god is the machine you know this belief that machine learning and artificial intelligences are increasingly able to divine a world it's just too complex for us as human beings to mm. understand um, and that we're kind of reaching the point now a kind of pivotal moment when um, machine intelligences in certain conditions and with certain use cases will simply now be able to spot patterns that we cannot and at that point we really won't be able to understand as humans why and how they've spotted the patterns that they have. Yes, so there is a there is a comprehension problem, or there will be certainly. There's also something that that, that I find interesting, and this is partly why the um, New York has just passed that law, as far as I understand it, is that you can have bias in an algorithm because, of course, the algorithm is the creation initially of whoever wrote it, and of their own conscious or unconscious biases. 
How is it introduced and what are the effects and how easy is it to trace bias in an algorithm? So the most notorious case of bias was with a, an algorithm um, being used within the judicial system in, in America um, around deciding whether people should be given bail. This algorithm was fed just about as many different background characteristics about, about people applying for bail as possible and then began to try and predict whether they were likely to commit a crime were they given bail. Now, what transpired was that the algorithm was picking up the socio-demographic skews which heavily correlated with black and Latino people within, that, within the cities where they lived. So it began to actually infer that people were more or less likely to commit a crime on the basis of their race. Now, of course, that's entirely a legal kind of adjudication to make. And the algorithm, in fact, and this was what was so tricky about it, wasn't making it directly. It was actually linking non-racial characteristics with racial characteristics and then implicitly, and then those were the final decision. So we're opening up a whole new kind of legal and moral space here. And this is the training data uh, that, that the that machine learning uses. Every instance of machine learning is fed data about the world. This is how it learns. It, it looks for patterns on the basis of previous patterns that have been suggested to it. And this legal case is only one of, of, of I think, uh, many years or even decades of, of constant legal work is trying to identify the different ways in which um, automated decision making, when it becomes automated, begins to break the very basic kind of moral principles that we, we have always asked manual decision making to, to be held up against. And we, we should remember, actually, just in, in, in defence of, I think it's quite easy to be incredibly anxious and worried by all these new new systems, but they do also have the potential to do an incredible amount of good as well. I mean, um, one of the people that I uh, went visited um, when I was in Silicon Valley was was a man called Yuri Leskovec uh, at Stanford, who designed another algorithm um, also to uh, make decisions around bail. And he had worked out very clever and effective ways of trying to expose bias within the machine, to try and eliminate within the training data ways in which the machine might actually lead to conclusions about race. And then to also work out ways in which it could help the human judges actually make the decision themselves. And in those cases, I mean, and this is what is incredible, and this is what I think makes this quandary which we're facing a really a really interesting and difficult one, is that the kind of machine learning process that he designed um, was 30% better at predicting whether someone would commit a crime on bail than the average judge. Yes, in, and in terms of statistics, but from the little that I was looking at, it seemed to be, I don't know if you agree with this, that the, that the optimum solution was where you have a human and the machine is that you don't have one or the other. Actually, well, you, you can just have a human. We have been doing that for a long time. <laughs> but if the machine, if, if the algorithms or the machines, you know, the robot overlords, whatever you want to call them, if, if they're helping, which is, you know, which is what you're saying, it's mad not to use them and they're there. Um, but it does seem to be that, yeah, and there are some things like with driverless cars, which are statistically much, much, much safer, but there are a couple of things they can't do that only humans can do. It seems to be that the optimum solution is a human plus a machine. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. That, that, is, that, is, that is optimal um, in almost every use case, certainly, and from a legal perspective, having a human owning the final decision, also really important. However, in, in, in practicality, judges were given a few minutes to make each decision. They made a vastly differing array of decisions. Some were much more lenient than others. Um, and they were carrying with them a whole uh, body of unconscious biases too. 
but you're right I, and I think I think that combination is going to be what we increasingly see in our own lives as well I mean there are going to be judges and politicians and militaries that are using machine learning all the time to make decisions but I think the kind of next revolutionary step what we're standing on the precipice of right now is the way in which all this all these different kind of forms of machine learning are going to enter all of our lives I could really see in kind of three or four years time how it's we will feel almost naked if we're not kind of being given support by a whole kind of stable of virtual agents in making important decisions whether we buy a house um, where should we, we should go to university it will kind of feel like you are you're kind of blinded by this kind of uh, sixth sense of data if you're not using these things to to help you make those decisions it will just feel so arbitrary I think mm-hmm. before before we do move on then um you quote um Yudi Leskovic towards the end of your piece um, and he says um, we need to step up and come up with the means to evaluate vet algorithms in unbiased ways is there does he is there a sort of a concrete proposal that he that he makes there for that is it are we to imagine some kind of council of extra governmental international humans or i mean my understanding from Ure's uh, suggestion there was actually that it would be technical so almost mach- forms of machine learning checking other forms of machine right. learning as if this is That's a complicated enough already. <laughs> um, although, I mean, f- for me, absolutely right. I mean, I think I, I think it's mad that already that we don't have a Royal College of Algorithmists and Technologists. The idea that this profession, and it is really a profession, can go around building these unbelievably important and influential pieces of technology with no kind of centrally enforced kind of and publicly recognized series of ethical principles i think is absolutely crazy the the, the this is this is the emergence of a profession as important as uh, lawyers or accountants or judges or or uh, or doctors in our lives and they should um, have their own kind of professional standards and they and 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 watchdogs and everything else it almost feels like the and i think this is a general problem that i i deal with in book trying to understand power in so many different ways um as kind of power increasingly kind of reaches through to us through these kinds of technologies it seems to be moving in ways which are so fast that it's like outpacing the kind of moral and ethical infrastructure or architecture that we've always built in society and and right now we're in that gap where actually the ways in which decision making has changed quite drastically but the ways in which we try and um try and try and control that power through transparency accountability all the things we've just been speaking about just simply hasn't caught up yet Mm-hmm. So we need a Royal College of Algorithmists. I, I nominate you as the Chancellor. <laughs> Thank you very much, Carl Miller. Thank Thanks. you for joining us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Dear God, what a sexy reading list Michelle Dean has put together, Kristen Rupenian positively exclaims in her review of Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion, by Michelle Dean. Never have I seen so clearly that my dream version of myself, the person I always assumed I would grow up to be, is a dryly witty, slightly abrasive woman in a black turtleneck, whose end table is stacked high with yellowed paperback copies of lesser-known works by Susan Sontag, Joan Didion and Hannah Arendt. But, of course, dream worlds are famously complicated, full of the outpourings and repressions of those who conjure them. Michelle Dean's vision brings together the work of ten writers, among them Dorothy Parker, Rebecca West, Hannah Arendt and Janet Malcolm, gathered, Dean explains, under the sign of a compliment that every one of them has received in their lives. They were all called Sharp. It's a curious project. Appealing on one level, it is indeed a sexy reading list, but supremely frustrating on a number of other levels. For one thing, I find it difficult to imagine a book like Sharp being written about male writers. And there are a number of other annoyances too. Kristen Rupenian joins us on the line now to, I expect, be very sharp about it all. Um, Hello, Kristen. Hi. The women who made an art of having an opinion. What does that subtitle mean? I mean, isn't isn't that just called being a good writer? Yes, as far as I can tell, uh, it is a very wide definition. As I mentioned in the review, there's definitely sort of a ghost of what feels like a smaller project in the book, which was maybe writing about female cultural critics primarily. And I think the majority of the women, maybe all of them, have written at least some nonfiction. So that narrows it down a little bit from all women writers to women writers of nonfiction and some criticism, but it's still a huge definition, um, very open, which sort of makes the um, limitations of the people that she has chosen even more kind of striking. It does sound a bit like 10 characters in search of a thesis. I mean, is there there anything that particularly does enable us to bind them together? I think having read through the whole book, the majority of them come from very similar backgrounds. They're all sort of circling around this world of the New York intellectual. Um, Many, many of them knew each other or had spoken to each other in passing, sort of the, the connective tissue between the chapters is almost invariably so and so wrote someone a letter or met someone at a party or panned someone's book. So they're linked in this sort of circumstantial fashion. It's the sort of intellectual argument for why we should consider themselves, consider them together as thinkers that I think is a little more um, haphazard and not quite well developed. It also seems to me, Kristen, that um, the subtitle undersells it a little bit already Mm -hmm. because 
they didn't just have an opinion. I mean, everybody yeah. has an opinion about cheese sandwiches or, you know, whatever. But they right. didn't. They, they made some extremely complicated arguments and followed them through and expressed them. very. I mean, they did all sorts of things, but there was a lot more than just having an opinion. Exactly. They ha- they did more than having an opinion. And in the introduction, she doesn't use that phrase, actually, the art of having an opinion. That maybe appears once or twice in the book. But she says, I chose them under the because someone called them sharp, mm, which is the yeah. title of the book, which really turns it all inside out and makes it even more confusing because then it's defining them based on the reaction that other people had to them, which is both ends up being reductive because often sharp is a kind of you know, it's a it's a double edged sword when used to when applied to especially a female thinker. And it also means that women that we might want to include in a broader survey of female intellectuals are left out because they weren't treated in the way that these particular women were treated by the, I guess, broader literary establishment. Before we move on to precisely what has been left out of, of a book like this. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, con- it's been conceived with a very specific reader in mind, hasn't it? I mean, it's dedicated to anyone who's ever been told you're too smart for your own good, I think. Yeah, which is a funny and slightly self-congratulatory way of... Uh, I felt like both drawn in and then repelled when I realised no one ever <laughs> said that to me. Um, I think you're encouraged to identify with these women, both in that they're smart and, you know, making strong arguments and they're living the life of the mind and it's very appealing. And then you push at that a little and you're like, wait, like, to what extent can, like... How narrow is the audience of this book that we're meant to assume that all its readers could identify with these very particular kinds of women? And also, what does it mean? I don't know. It just made me sort of look in the mirror a little bit and think about like what kinds of intellectual figures do I identify with? Where is like my personal canon of like thinkers that came before me? Because I got the sense reading it, it seems in some ways, and I think I would have liked it better if it had been more explicitly this, a personal book, like a person, a story of the author saying, these are the women that shaped me. These are the ones I see as my predecessors. That to me seems like a more defensible and sort of limited argument than trying to make a larger claim about why these 10 women in particular ought to be considered. And is, is Michelle Dean quite possessive of these writers? Is she is she very keen to make us see how these particular writers sit in 2018? You know, it, quite often with biographies like this, you might see quite anxious attempts to grapple with past opinions and to smooth them over and make them fit neatly and, and you know, be relatable to. I mean, I think in one sense, she's sort of set herself a very simple task in that there aren't any she does there isn't any writer here that needs a strong reclamation or to have her reputation redeemed right like these are all i would go so far as to say entering into the canon um they're well-known well-respected figures there was a um another review i think it was in that I forget exactly where it was, but that was just sort of went briefly through all the women that maybe she could have considered if she had dug a little deeper. There are so many female intellectuals, especially of color, but all kinds whose reputations have 
who have been forgotten, right? Who didn't get sort of through the lion's den of criticism that tends to face women who genuinely fight for controversial opinions and who are forgotten. So like the fact that it's, you know, Susan Sontag and Hannah Arendt, and to be fair to Michelle Dean, she does touch on the fact that they have some really you know, I mean, I don't know if I go so far as to say troubling, but yeah, like they were wrong about a lot of things. And she'll mention that, you know, she doesn't, I think she's interested in the fact that these women sometimes were on the wrong side of history, were, you know, arguing for things that proved to be indefensible, but it doesn't really change the, the veil. It, like it's, we touch on it and then we go back to, weren't they smart? Weren't they great? Wasn't it hard to be a female intellectual in a time where they were struggling to get that kind of respect? Well, as you say, um, Zora Neale Hurston comes out of this barely at all it's it's half a chapter I think is dedicated Mm -hmm. uh, to her and her work she's just one of of many sort of casualties of this approach I suppose that was probably the point where she lost me the most was her treatment of Zora Neale Hurston because it is in addition to being this kind of she gets half a chapter which just feels in some ways worse than not getting a chapter at all and that chapter is then devoted largely to sort of explaining why she doesn't get a full chapter, which is just such a strange treatment of someone who's just like the other woman in the the book, such a huge figure in sort of this history to reduce her to half a chapter, to spend so much time sort of saying the reason that she couldn't rise to the status or have the effect that these other women had um, was because of racism. And I think that just factually doesn't strike me as an accurate assessment of um, Hurston's place in a larger canon. And also, even if it is true that Hurston's work, especially her nonfiction, especially her opinions, as opposed to her fiction, which I think we can all agree, she's, you know, been understood as one of the greats now. Fiction-wise, maybe her nonfiction, you could make the case, is less appreciated than those of her contemporaries. But Dean's writing a book (laughs) in which she is the critic. So why repeat the mistakes of your predecessors rather than saying, hey, I have this amazing opportunity to really make a strong case for the fact that Hurston's wit was as sharp and her criticism as incisive as any of these other writers. In fact, on a a final note, Hurston sort of, as you quote her, she offers a a kind of a ready-made retort for that in um, in her essay, How It Feels to be Coloured Me. I wonder if you could read that for us. Yeah, I sure can. It's a great quote. She says, Sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it does not make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can they deny themselves the pleasures of my company? It's beyond me. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's made right? precisely for this. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Kristen Rupenian, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. How fitting it is, almost as though we know what we're doing here, that we can move straight from that oversight, by which Zora Neale Hurston, one of the most celebrated authors of mid-century black America, remains just there, on the margins of great literature, into a discussion that points out why that should not be the case. Colin Grant has written a wonderful piece for us this week on Zora Neale Hurston, with a particular focus on a work of non-fiction, Barracoon, an account of Kosola Olo Luai, the last known survivor of the transatlantic slave trade. And Colin Grant is in the studio with us now. Welcome. 
Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. Before we come to the book, which is a remarkable thing for various reasons, let's talk about Zora Neale Hurston a little. She's almost certainly best known as a writer of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, What was her her purpose and contribution there? Because it wasn't always the easiest of memberships for her. Her purpose was to amuse and entertain and to be a bit (laughs) mischievous, I think. She was uh, part of a circle of people who um, coined a phrase for themselves, the niggerati, I can play on the word N-I-G-G-E-R and literati. And they were actually supported in their endeavours by a patron called Charlotte Mason, who was a great benefactor for them. She was sort of steering them as to what they should do. She wanted them to bring out their Africanness. But also, this is the time when, in accordance to the doctrine and philosophy of W.E.B. Du Bois, these writers were trying to show their white counterparts, they were just as able and as as accomplished as them. And so famously, Du Bois posited this notion of the talented tenth. So Zora Neale Hurston was part of the talented tenth. And the talented tenth were the 10% of the black population, the elite, who were going to bring up the rest with them. Um, And in David Leverin Lewis's phrase, they were going to promote an idea of civil rights by copyright. So they were going to they were going to use their writing to serve civil rights. And she struggled with this quite quite a lot, didn't she? Because a lot of her own writing was criticised for sort of uh, reinforcing ideas of primitivism. She yes. did a lot of work because she was, she was an anthropologist and an ethnographer as well. Yeah, she's quite, quite a character. I mean, I think she, when she was doing her anthropological work in Haiti and Jamaica, she packed a pistol with her. <laughs> so th- things weren't very calm. A lot of the time she was entering rather dangerous and hairy um, situations. But I think she was very earnest. And uh, she, I think, had a very kind of clear idea about the kind of writing that she wanted to do. And sometimes that led her into opposition to the sort of white middle class, actually, who had their own ideas about what a black person should be writing. So I think she's to be celebrated as a, as a feisty a single-minded writer, um, writing at a time when there wasn't much uh, backing other than people like Charlotte Mason and Du Bois and one or, one or two other patrons. Clearly also she dealt with very serious subjects and dealt with them very well and, as you say, very earnestly, but she also clearly had rapid wit mm. and could kind of come out with zingers, which presumably, I, I don't know, I mean, there, there weren't the only people who were allowed to do that at that time that I can think of was basically Dorothy Parker. And she, <laughs> she, she was kind yeah. of, she well, could she really had, give she, as good as she got. Yeah, she did. And she had a good companion in, in Langston Hughes, who was mm. equally was witty. Famously, she talked about the fact that a lot of people liked to complicate their heritage Mm. And pretend that they had some sort of Native American heritage. And she said she must be the only person who doesn't have an, a Native American relative on her mother's side. <laughs> <laughs> so she's very playful. But I think also she was quite canny. I mean, she, she, she found money where it was going. And uh, in the course of the book, which we're going to talk about, she got a fellowship to go and, and conduct some anthropology in Alabama. And, and so tell us about Barracoon then. Well, Barracoon, well done in, in the pronunciation of, of um, the Kossler. Kossler is, is the name of the last slave transported from Africa on board a ship called the Clotilde. And he was given the slave name Kuju Lewis eventually. And so she went down in the late 1920s to Alabama, Mobile, Alabama, to uh, conduct a series of interviews with this man who uh, at the time he must have been approaching 90 and he had a phenomenal memory 
And she went down initially to conduct some anthropological research as part of a general project um, funded by uh, an institution. And initially she was tasked with just writing an essay and providing other source material for a, a larger book. And there's some dispute about whether she withheld some of the material that she gathered in order for her to write her own book later on, mm. because there were disputes about whether she had properly sourced and credited other writers whom she looked to in order to support her thesis. So she went down there in the middle of October, I believe, in 1927, and then she went back again towards the end of the year, and she went and spoke to this elderly man, this very poetic man, for about three months, and she would bring him melons and tobacco and biscuits and salt fish and she would charm him but fundamentally she sat with him and she was a very good listener and was able to draw out of him some of these rather harrowing tales that he hadn't really told in as much detail as he was able to tell her. I wonder had anybody paid him that much attention had he been asked his story properly before? Probably not I mean he had one or two people had visited him but I think just the 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 depth and the level of, of the attention that she gave to him was very seductive, I think, mm. and I think that um, enabled this phenomenal story to be told. He was also himself supported by Charlotte Mason, who sent him money and uh, aided him uh, at a time when this is towards the beginning of the, uh, the Great Depression, of course, and so times were rough and, and money was tight. So I think also he was a very, very lonely man by the time she met him. Although he'd had six children, a number of them had died. And one of the great sorrowful passages is, is this sort of litany of deaths that, um, mm. that he tells. Uh, one son is shot dead by a sheriff. Another son had his, has his head chopped off by a train. He's decapitated. And a third son departs and goes off into the woods and is never seen again, presumed he's killed himself. So even after this terrible ordeal of the man himself, of Kosala's life himself, when he comes to America and starts his own family, the, the trials and tribulations continue. Uh, and it's almost like Job. Mm. It's kind of mm. catastrophic, some of the things that happen to him. But still he has this um, centre, he has this contentedness and this um, amazing indomitable spirit which she reflects on and, and articulates very beautifully in the book. And how do you think um, Hurston saw herself in relation to him? Was there a change in, in, her, in her time knowing him? Did it make her kind of reposture somehow? Yeah, I think she was humble with him. And I think um, that she actually came to love him, um, initially to befriend him. But she yearned just to sit with him and to listen to these amazing tales. And um, their relationship deepened um, the more... He told her. But also, he recognised that he would tell things in the way that he wanted to tell them, in the order in which he wanted to tell them. Rather like a griot, he would go back to the beginning and he would say, I can't tell you about the son until I've told you about the father. Mm. And he would counsel her to be more patient. And sometimes, if he wasn't in a good frame of mind or he was feeling blue, he would tell her to go away and come back the next day or the next week. Mm. And she was very respectful of that. And I think that level of respect... Is, is, is transformed and translated in the book. And patience was something that Hurston herself would have needed in, in the, the bringing together and, and eventual publishing of the book. What, what, what was it that, why did it take so long? Well, maybe 
as it is today. Sometimes it's difficult to sell these kinds of books. Mm. I remember when I tried to sell my first book, we had lots of uh, interesting um, responses and kind words from the various publishers, but they all came back. This is a book about Marcus Garvey. And they all came back and said, no commercial prospects. <laughs> and it might have been that this kind of story would find no commercial prospects in America at that time. Mm. But also, she was very determined not to dilute his language. She was going to write it as she heard it. And a lot of the publishers who were interested in the book wanted her to make the language more standard, and she mm. refused. So they wanted, they wanted her to translate him, as it were. Into yeah, the, they wanted her to be more of a mediator yeah. and for, for, for her to be the conduit between him and, and the reader and to make the book more readable um, um, in a kind of more... In, in a way that was more familiar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she, to give her credit, she said no. Mm -hmm. She'd rather have it not published than to make this kind of sacrifice. But it's very strong when the, when you uh, you quote from bits of it in your piece when it's in his language, because you do get a very real sense that that's him talking. And as you say, he doesn't do exactly what she asks all the time. He says, more, I'm going to tell it this way. I'm going to tell it yes. the way I want to tell it. And, and he clearly does. I find it quite difficult to read at times, though. It's a very thin book. But very powerful book, mm. and what's very unique about it is that there are very few slave narratives from people who are not yet enslaved. So people in Africa before they're enslaved, telling what their life was like before the slavers came and captured them and took them overseas, and you get a real sense of the not idyll of uh, African life in this village in Benin but you get a sense of a functioning and a society that has tenderness and, and compassion for, for each member has tenderness and compassion for, each, for the other. And when the, the, the raiders come, these are these Dahomean slavers, they're, they're Africans, but they're, they're going to enslave these people and, and sell them to the white man. It's just appalling what happens they you know they kill all the elderly people and they chop their heads off mm. the extreme uh, sadness of kosola's tale being ultimately that he's the last of, of his tribe he's the last of the tokai yeah um and they have this forced march from bante is the village he's from down to the coast and i did a little search on google maps today walking non-stop it would take us uh, 72 hours so you can imagine the ordeal of walking with the people whom you've been brought up with, with their heads chopped off, mm -hmm. belted to the slavers, and the misery of that journey. Um, and that's just the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And the book goes on and on and on like that. It's, it's quite an ordeal. I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of how sad Zora Neale Hurston's own end was, I think, mm -hmm. until she was sort of rediscovered, her work was rediscovered in the in the early mid 70s i think predominantly by alice walker yes. she was she was i think she ended her life in a welfare home is that right and then in, 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 in yeah grave. um it's rather sad but maybe that's the way of a lot of writers who especially after the great depression when there were some writers who were supported by the federal writers project but uh, she wasn't really supported by that she arrived at a time when the negro was no longer in vogue so she ended up as a cleaner i believe um, and when she was eventually discovered many years later, she pretended that she was doing some anthropological work into cleaners. Mm. But yeah, all credit to uh, Alice Walker for um, leading the charge to resurrect this woman's wonderful career. Mm. Indeed. Well, um, 
that is it for this week, I'm afraid. Um, my thanks go to you, Colin Grant, to Kristen Rupenian and to Carl Miller. If you don't already subscribe to the TLS or indeed to this podcast, why not do both? In this week's issue, as well as the pieces we've discussed today, you'll find a brilliant account of Evelyn Waugh's early years, how Proust's finances affected his writing, the lingering legacy of the Vikings in England, the co-evolutionary story of greyhounds and humans, and the story of Chang and Eng, Victorian-era conjoined twins all part of our full to the brim summer double issue which means that next week there won't be an issue of the tls and there will be deafening silence where this podcast usually is we will be back on september 6th until then from lucy and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.